Welcome everyone to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nick Gibson. I'm the lead pastor here at High Point, and I'm joined by Devin White. Um, we just celebrated Easter, and it's a time where we can bring up questions about the validity of what we're celebrating and the importance of what we're celebrating, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So we're going to be talking about apologetics relative to the resurrection of Jesus. We will define what the word apologetics means. Um, but before we jump into that, um, Devin, why don't, why don't you tell people a little bit about your background, your education and stuff, and why it is we might select you to be on this podcast. Sure. Uh, first off, thanks, Nick, for inviting me to talk with you today. Uh, my name is Devin White. I am currently a research fellow in biblical studies and early Christianity at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I grew up Christian in the Midwest and decided that I really wanted to get to know more about my faith. So I went to seminary and after seminary, I decided that I knew just enough to be dangerous. So I went and got a PhD in biblical studies. Uh, so and now you know enough to be really dangerous. Really dangerous. That's exactly right. So a lot of my academic work is about the letters of Paul. Yeah, a lot of my academic work is about the way that the Bible is interpreted and the first 500 years of Christianity and why the early Christians read the Bible in that way. And then really kind of the third point, the end of my academic work is explaining how the way that the Bible was read in the early church can inform the way that we should read the Bible today. Yeah. And for those listening, uh, uh, writing and academics on some of those earlier is sometimes referred to as patristics, which is a Greek word for a father. So it's like the church fathers. It's a, it's a study of that period. Um, Devin, uh, do you want to like define for people what apologetics is for the folks that don't know? Sure. So apologetics, as I see it, is it's just one of the fundamental ways that Christians talk. And if you're looking for one biblical text that's especially relevant here, you can look at sort of the classic 1 Peter 3, especially verses 14 to 16, mm-hmm. where uh, Peter tells the church that they should always be ready to give a, a defense of what it is that they think and believe. And the Greek word there is apologia. So when we say apologetics, what we're really using is a is a technical Greek term that in its ancient context is especially the sort of speech that you'd give in a like a law court. So in the same way that today, if you're a lawyer and you are offering a defense of someone who stands committed of a crime, what you're delivering is an apology for that person. And this is this is then a technical form of discourse that people are using all throughout the ancient world. Um, one of the earliest uh, sort of major movements in Christian literature after the New Testament is done are apologies. It's early Christians, guys whose names you may or may not have heard, like Justin Martyr or Athenagoras of Athens or Origin of Alexandria. And they're, what they're writing are defenses of what they think is true about Christianity. Often they're directly engaging the culture around them. People have said, no, Christianity doesn't make sense. And here's why. And they come back and say, no, we disagree. We're still Christians. And this is why. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So it, and so in contemporary terms, sometimes people say it's a reason to defensive Christian belief too, right? That's be a fairly standard. Fair. Okay. So let's move on to this. So um, Devin, so how important in the, among the apostles in the New Testament in the early church was the belief that the resurrection of Jesus was something that really happened as a historical event in which the dead body of the man Jesus became alive again and um, he is our resurrected Christ in a literal sense? Yeah, great question. Uh, there are some points of Christianity about which 
other Christians can disagree and still remain loving sisters and brothers in Christ. As far as the apostles are concerned, the resurrection of Jesus is not one of those things. Jesus Mm -hmm. either rose from the dead, or as Paul says, our faith is totally futile. Apart from the resurrection. First Corinthians 15. That's right. Yep. So first Corinthians 15 is the longest single argument in Paul's letter. uh, What survive of Paul's letters. And it's all about the resurrection. And as far as Paul's concerned, if Jesus didn't totally die, get put in the grave as a stiff corpse. And then on the third day, life comes back into his body. There is no point in being a Christian. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Does he say? Well, as far as Paul's concerned, the Christian life that he lives is a resurrection life. Like the same, so the way he puts it in Romans eight is that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in him and in every other Christian, so that they can live the sort of holy lives of service that that God asks of His people. An argument he also makes in Ephesians 1, if I remember correctly, too. So this is not just a throwaway line in Romans 8. It's a, it's a theme. In, That's in right. So, so one answer is that uh, Christian life is impossible apart from the resurrection, apart from the power of the resurrection at work in every single Christian every day of their lives. But another answer is that Paul is looking for the ultimate reversal of sin and the curses that are introduced in Genesis. He looks around at the world around him and what he sees is something, it's just like watching an ongoing train wreck that doesn't stop wrecking. And so Paul is looking for a way to end that train wreck. He's looking for the time when not only does that train wreck stop wrecking, but God fixes things so good that it's not as if the train wreck never was, but like it, like it gives meaning to the train wreck. And at the end of the day, you can actually be glad that the train wrecked. So when Paul looks at the world around him, all he sees apart from the resurrection is reason for despair. But he says, because of the resurrection, because that because the resurrection has begun in Jesus, and because we're looking for an ultimate resurrection from the dead, when all of us experience that new life in our bodies, wherever we're buried, whether we're in the depths of the sea or six feet down in a grave, at that point, when the resurrection life hits our bodies, all of creation gets renewed along with us so that the, the sorts of things that, that we look at now and would, would cause us to mourn and despair, as he says, you know, death gets swallowed up in victory. Mm-hmm. So those are two big reasons why it matters. One, Christian life is just impossible without it. Second, it, it is like the point that gives meaning to the whole of the creation story from Adam until the end. And wouldn't you agree that like the argument in First Corinthians 15, that part of what he's arguing too is, is that the resurrection of Christ is proof that Christ's death is an accepted sacrifice on our behalf as a substitutionary atonement? Because he says, if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sins. And that in some way, it's the, the resurrection of Jesus also is an, a divine affirmation of the success of the cross. Yeah, so it's a divine affirmation of the success of the cross. And, and here again, I mean, I, I extrapolate from... Romans 15, I'm sorry, Acts 15, good morning. I go from 1 <laughs> Corinthians 15 back to Romans. So, right. I mean, Paul is really clear that when Christ dies, he dies as a sin offering. Mm-hmm. 
And it's only because he dies as a, as a sin offering that sin is dealt with. So, the, but the important thing here is that uh, I do kind of want to keep some distinction here between Christ dying as a sin offering and the ultimate mm-hmm. resurrection of the dead. Because, so yeah, right. the the sin offering takes care of sin. It 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 covers past sin. But once the past sin is covered, what happens next? Right. You know, once you and I have gone and repented. So sin is covered, but then what happens next? How do we know we're not just going to fall back into it and fall back into it and fall back into right. it? Like the proverbial dog returning to its vomit. Right. And right. Anyway, this is where saying, resurrection comes in. Right. The resurrection life of the new law of the spirit in Romans 8, which overcomes the wretchedness of both our weakness and our sin in Romans 7, right? But then ultimately the rising from the dead, which is expressed in our baptism as referenced in Romans 6. And also points forward to our resurrection from the dead. Okay, so I, I, like, hopefully for those of you listening, that that is kind of clear that the resurrection is an incredibly meaningful thing. And I think Devin is right that I don't know of any time in the history of the church before the modernist period where Christians behaved, taught, or thought as though you could be a Christian without believing in the historical nature of the man Jesus rising physically from the dead. And so one of the things that that brings us to in 2021 Right, Devin, is that um, this is a lot of people have say have said that this is also an event that can be a like an evidence focus for trying to lead people to Christ. That to say to to somebody who's not a believer to say, listen, one of the fundamental reasons why you should become a Christian is because a, a very strong historical argument can be made to give evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Right. And um, there are some people who believe that this is one of the best arguments for Christianity. Somebody like um, like uh, uh, William Lane Craig would be one of the people who like in his arguments, five arguments he makes publicly for believing in Jesus. One of them is that it makes the most sense of the evidence related to Christ rising from the dead. Other believers who believe in the gospel think that it's not a super clean way to do it. Right. So what, um, what are, I think there's two things that people I think would benefit from one. One is, is there a good historical argument for evidence for Christ rising from the dead? And for for them to believe themselves and to fortify their own faith that this is a historical event, and then secondly, to what extent is that helpful in evangelism? So can we, can we start with like just the argument for the resurrection? Can you just share some reason to believe that the that there's that there's good historical reason to believe based on the documents that exist from a impartial perspective that Christ rose from the dead? Yeah. So two issues really important to each. I'm going to try not to conflate them, but stop me up if I do. Okay. So in the first case, yeah, absolutely. There is, there is good historical evidence that something happened on Easter Sunday and that that something was a resurrection. Not everybody makes the same case for it. William Lane Craig will talk about it differently you know, as a as sort of a philosopher, he'll talk about it differently than a Bible scholar like N.T. Wright would. But both of them would pretty much agree that something happened on Easter Sunday, and that something was that Jesus got up from the dead and walked out of the grave. Um, the evidence for it is really tied up with what the Gospels themselves uh, uh, say about the resurrection and the way that they describe the resurrection happening, and also. That has to do, uh, there's, there's a couple other passages, especially in Paul's letters that are relevant. You've already talked about 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's yeah. pretty clear that when he's writing, he thinks that there are hundreds of people walking around in his own day who have seen Jesus. And by the way, he's talked to them. Mm-hmm. And he also thinks that Jesus appeared to him. 
So there are a lot of people walking around in the first century writing in their names to other people saying, I've seen Jesus. So that's one of the first places to start is that as, as, as much as we know about the ancient world, as much as we know about what it was like to be in the ancient world 2000 years ago, you know, for sure that there were people walking around saying, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And then he appeared to me. I saw him. So there, there is eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. Um, some people like to discredit that eyewitness testimony for various reasons, one way or the other. But for now, let's just, let's just say that if you went into a courtroom today and someone said, I saw that defendant steal that money from that vault, you'd have to at least be willing to take eyewitness testimony at face value. When you get past eyewitness testimony and you get into some of the gospels, like, so like Luke's gospel, Luke wasn't one of the disciples. Luke wasn't running around with Peter and James and John, but presumably Luke is interviewing these people. Presumably Luke is uh, is working with other ancient documents that we just don't have access to today. He something says, like what we might call a deposition. Something that, yeah, like he, sure. He was going out depositioning these people who were witnesses. Because <laughs> he said, I mean, the way he talks about in the first verses of Luke is that he was like very careful like asking pointed questions, finding out all the facts. It was, right. he wasn't just passing on rumors is his, is the claim he makes right. In the That's first right. Verses of Luke's yeah. He book. says so far as he's able, he has, he has done the most thorough research that he could, that he could perform. So, but, but the point then is that even when you're reading a gospel like Luke and you get to a resurrection story, like you find in Luke 24, which is one of my favorites, we've got two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and suddenly there's this third guy with them. These, these two people are disciples. Right, they've been following around Jesus. They're not one of the twelve or two of the twelve, but they are disciples. Right. They know who Jesus was. They say we've been hoping that this was the guy who was going to redeem all Israel. And Jesus walks with them for a long way, and they don't know who he is. But afterwards, you know, they they take him they take him into their place where they're staying for the night for dinner, and in the breaking of the bread, suddenly they recognize that it's Jesus, and then he's gone. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so there are stories like this that. Uh, they almost like from a modernist perspective, they strain credulity, but mm -hmm. also from like the perspective of an ancient audience, it would strain some of their credulity too. So why would you tell it that way? If what you're really looking for is to give the best available evidence. Mm -hmm. the, so the answer is, well, you give the evidence that you have. And if this is actually what people say happened, Mm -hmm. then the most faithful thing to do is to report what people say happened. Uh, another yeah. place where like the evidence, some people would say that this is like an embarrassment in the ancient world. Uh, when you, when you look at a resurrection story like John 20, which is another one of my favorites, it's the first day of the week. It's still dark outside. All the disciples are scattered. Who comes to the tomb? It's a woman, Mary Magdalene. And Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And then she goes and reports the resurrection to the rest of the disciples. So in antiquity, unfortunately, and, and you know, there's some variation around the Mediterranean world, but in general, a lot of men did not think of women as reliable witnesses to important events. So if Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and uses Mary Magdalene as like one of his first and most important witnesses to the resurrection. Why would, why, if you're trying to convince your audience of the truth of the resurrection, 
would you put some of your most important evidence into the mouth of someone who you knew your audience would be predisposed not to listen to? Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? Unless you thought this is what actually happened. And the only way to convince you is to say the way it actually happened. Cause otherwise you're going to go do the research for yourself. Cause like, let's just say that the author of the gospel of John had put Peter's name in there, but then somebody after the fact did the research and said, no, nope, that's not how it happened. Mm-hmm. People Better who to are, tell the truth. That's right. Better to tell the truth and to be then caught in a lie. Story. Right. That's right. Exactly. So, which, is, which is really comforting because if 2,000 years later you're asking questions about like, well, this comes down to the reliability of the witnesses, right? That's what it all comes down to. Are these people who wrote these documents reliable? And to have these kinds of like interspersed, unintended evidences to their reliability is very helpful. Super helpful. So uh, for me, I think something happened Easter Sunday. I think Jesus got up from the grave and that it was a resurrection in the fullest, most robust Christian theological sense of that word, that there was suddenly new life empowered by God's resurrecting spirit and Jesus's body. Uh, and I think that some of the examples I've just given as to like the detail in the text and the nature of eyewitness reports, mm-hmm. th- those, those are encouraging for me as a Christian. And I think they should be encouraging yeah. for other Christians too, that you could say, no, th- there are actually some some reasons why I believe this other than Nick Gibson or whoever your pastor is or Josh McDowell or William Lane Craig or whoever, Mm -hmm. there are some good reasons to think that this happened. Yeah. Let me, let me bounce a couple more off of you. One, I think sometimes people scoff at this and say, yeah, resurrection is something people could believe in in the ancient world because they were profoundly superstitious and just prone to believe in that kind of thing. And even though the ancient world had a lot of superstition in it, I would argue that there's actually a lot of superstition right now. I'm not sure if it's all that much less, but, um, but like when, when the apostle Paul um, is on Mars Hill and he's, he's speaking to the Greeks in Athens and he's, and he references the resurrection from the dead. They like laugh at him and they close up shop. So like the, the idea that people would just buy into any claim of resurrection from the dead is probably not right. Right. That these yeah. people were not so superstitious that they'd be like, Oh, this is, this is great. Right. I, th- I think uh, another one I think this is important is um, like Richard Bauckham, I think in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, talks about how like there are certain references that include certain names. So you talked about how the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to more than 500 people who had seen Jesus resurrected. But even in something like in Mark 15, 21, where it says that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross. And then there's this little parenthetical note, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So like as Mark is writing this later on, right? Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus cross went on to get married and have children. And these children were believers and known. And so when he writes his gospel, he's like, you know, by the way, you know, this Simon of Cyrene, like this is the guy who, whose kids, Alexander and Rufus, like, you know, like they're alive. You, you've heard of them. You could ask them like their dad passed the story down to them. So there's like, there's like these historical little markers that are like throwaways to most modern readers that the average church goer reads that and goes, Oh, he's the father of Alexander Rufus. Well, why did, why did Mark put that in there? That's dumb. But for like scholarship or like when you're trying to figure out evidence, evidentially kind of what happened, these are actually incredibly helpful little additions. Right. And that I think Baca makes color, a really good point. Just, you, you can't make that up. Right. And it, it, it was a falsifiable thing. Like Mark included something that even however many years later, you could then falsify it by talking to Alexander and Rufus. He's like, here's how you can check my work. Talk to Alexander and Rufus. Right. And putting in falsifiable things in documents like that is a really positive thing for their validity. Right. 
And then I think lastly, some scholars about the resurrection have argued that even extremely skeptical scholars believe that before the New Testament documents were written, there were creeds that existed in the Christian church and that those creeds included direct references to a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. So that the earliest Christian theology that we have or that exists or that we even presume exists included a professed belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And in that sense, it wasn't a later creation or a creation with a quote purpose behind it. Does that make sense? Which is the common skeptical view now, which is that like the new Testament documents were written from a quote community who had a like political or religious agenda. And therefore the dynamics of the writing of these documents was shaped around their agenda, which of course in one level is true but the assumption there is is that it's their agenda was shaped by their agenda shaped the facts and then they they falsified the facts to fix their agenda whereas a christian would say no it, they were writing according to quote a agenda that is that they were proclaiming something that they believed was true but they meticulously didn't falsify anything because part of the claim that they were making was they were proclaiming the god of truth in whom there is no deceit so they they were barred from lying or falsifying anything because they were being witnesses to the truth. Does that make sense? And included that, and then I'll let you comment on this, is just the fact that throughout the New Testament documents, the semi-technical idea of being a witness is used over and over and over again, including like even when Judas kills himself saying, we need a, a, an eyewitness, somebody who was with us from the very beginning with Jesus to be someone who now takes Judas's place to proclaim the gospel. Because this idea of a technical eyewitness was actually pretty critical and they understood its importance from the beginning. Are those helpful? Do you think those are helpful additional? Yeah, no, I, I think I think there's an awful lot in there. I mean, you could probably break every one of those points down and make it a podcast of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think maybe the only the only point that I'd come back at is just to talk about early Christian tradition prior to the New Testament. I think mm-hmm. that's super hard to do. I think you can <laughs> you can do it plausibly sometimes, but yeah. I mean there are people who just write massive, 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 massive books trying to isolate like what was the the pre Pauline Christian tradition that gets picked up in Romans. What what uh, or you know think about all of the debates that you find around a hypothetical gospel manuscript like Q. So for for right. for, scholar, for, for scholars, Q is one of those big problems that we've been wrestling with for centuries. For people in the pew who may not know what it is, a lot of people have just stared at Matthew, Mark, and Luke for hundreds and hundreds of hours until their eyeballs bled. And they noticed that there was an awful lot that they shared in common, even down to like mm-hmm. specific wording like that, that words, can't yeah. be accidental. So right. some, So one of these people knew another document. Right. And one way of explaining the evidence is to say, well, Matthew and Luke probably had access to another document that wasn't Mark, right? but they had it in common and they both adapted it in distinctive ways. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. Yeah. But it's also possible that, some, that the other two had Mark. It's also possible that, I mean, the church fathers believe that Matthew was first, right? It was the first, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I mean, there and are still, there's still a minority of, of New Testament right. scholars who are, Mithi, they call them Mithian priority folks. And that's right. one way of explaining all the agreements between the gospels without needing to say, no, there's this other document. It got lost over time, but Matthew and Luke had access to it. Uh, so all right. this is to say, yeah, I, I think I can't imagine a, pre, a pre-New Testament Christian tradition that didn't include the resurrection. Right. But, yeah. but carbon dating it is impossible. 
Right. That's, that's right. really all. And, and just to be clear with people, this is all hypothetical criticism done by scholars. There's no literal physical documents of any of this kind of writing that exists that we have. So what, what we're talking, this is called source criticism, where you like take a document that you have, and then you try to figure out what the source was without any physical evidence from the source. And it's a very, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled and a lot of pages published in this realm. And, but it tends to be, it tends to feel pretty speculative. Though there are, there are things that feel pretty solid, you know, when there's certain editorial comments and places and stuff. So it's kind of an interesting thing, but it's not something you need to focus big, a big bit. But, but here's the interesting right thing for me, Nick, if I can just interject. And the, yeah. the reason why I'm glad you bring up the question of pre-New Testament Christian tradition is I just want to ask, why is that an interesting question for people? Right. I mean, it, it tells you something about who we are as modern Western thinkers about the resurrection as modern Western Christians who are interested in the life of Jesus and in the resurrection, that at some, some level, when we start to do history, like not just to read the, doc, the New Testament documents for faith edification or something, but when we start to do history, something in our brains goes off and says, hang on a second, we can ask more questions than these documents can answer. Yeah. And then we start to try and dig behind Holy Scripture to try and get at the earliest recoverable Christian history. And those two things aren't the same, but mm-hmm. you, you, you can kind of get from one to the other. And then the question is, how do you relate the two? Right. Yeah. I, I guess uh, here. So since we're like, I'm coming at this from a little bit of an apologetics perspective. One of the things I would say is the, one of the things we absolutely know or know with a lot of historical strength is that a boatload of people, but were willing to die for a resurrected Christ before the gospel documents were written or popular. So that, so we, we know Rome was killing lots of people who believed in Jesus the Christ, and they were willing to face their deaths, um, presumably, and in some cases explicitly because they said that they believed Jesus had risen from the dead and they would rise from the dead. And so you couldn't kill them. Yeah, so right. Uh, I mean, this is happening— look, Right. From the very beginning of the Christian movement, you've got Nero, uh, I mean, an infamous Roman emperor in the 60s uh, of the of this common era or AD. Right. Uh, a, a couple years ago, I was I was in Rome and they've been slowly excavating Nero's palace that the emperors after him backfilled just because they were they just didn't want anything to do with his memory. If I remember right, the, like the, the size of this thing was like one hundred and thirty three thousand square meters for this guy's house. But, you know, we're sitting in this room with like these VR goggles on and what they show you is what the gardens would have looked like right in front of you. And I'm sitting here with a bunch of other New Testament scholars. So what we're sitting here thinking is, oh yeah, that's where Nero impaled Christians, covered them in like pitch and burned Mm -hmm. them as torches for his garden parties. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, like not only were people willing to die for this in the first century, but they were executed in some gruesome ways. Yeah, horrifically tortured, and references and references to this in non-Christian literature. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's move on to like evangelism, like mm-hmm. apologetics relative to evangelism. So we were talking about evangelism relative to supporting our own belief and faith, and knowing that it has like evidential support that there's good reason to believe it. But in a lot of ways, like the the level of evidential certainty to persuade someone from another worldview to adopt Christian faith is probably different from from those of us who are prone to believe it, willing to believe it, and that this supports our belief. So when it comes to arguments for the resurrection 
relative to bearing witness to other people who are not believers? Like, what's the possibility here? What are the liabilities? What are the possibilities? What do we do with the resurrection relative to evangelism? When I'm, when I'm in evangelistic circumstances, I'm always making judgment calls about the people that I'm talking to. So, But let's just presuppose that the person we're talking to here is really, really curious about the question of, did the resurrection happen or didn't it, and can I know it? I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's a couple questions, but they're all related. I'm first going to just give you my baseline position on this, and I'll say that it's not a position that everyone shares. It's not even a position that every other Christian shares, but it is a position that a lot of Christians share. When I talk with somebody about the basic truths of the faith, if I'm introducing them to what Christianity is about, and the topic of the resurrection comes up and they want to know, did that happen? I say, yes, it happened. But if I'm talking to a historian, I, I, never, I never try to tell them that the historical evidence is so overwhelming that you can't not believe it. Mm-hmm. This isn't like the sinking of the Titanic, what we're talking about here. You can't go to the bottom of the ocean and find the Titanic. You can't go to ancient Israel, ancient Palestine, and find the empty tomb and know that it was Jesus's empty tomb and know that he was in there and know that he got out of it in the same way that you can know that the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic. The, the two events are not the same kind of events. Okay, uh, let, me, let me try to clarify this for listeners just for a second. Though. So like uh, that there are some events in history that there are written documents about that you can verify archeologically and there are some you can't and the resurrection, because the whole claim is that the archeological evidence is gone. <laughs> is by definition an event that you can't archaeologically verify. You can only you can verify only through documents and and its relationship to other historical events like Christians willing to die for it. That's but you right. can't actually archaeologically verify the resurrection because the evidence is literally gone. That's what the resurrection did. Is that, is that what you're saying? And yeah. and yeah, and so like for, with the Titanic, I mean, you could come up with a conspiracy theory that that boat got there in the Atlantic in a different way. But man, having that boat in the bottom of the ocean where you can see it, like really seems to, f- it, it feels credible, <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then you have also the additional issue of disbelief to claiming that someone rose from the dead, which tends to have, people tend to have resistance to that if they don't already believe that miracles are possible. So there's a, there's a presumptive like issue of just like, does it sound plausible to you that someone rose from the dead as opposed to whether or not it sounds plausible to you that ships sink, right? Historically, there's lots of other evidences of ships sinking and there's very few, if not, if not none other examples of someone being raised from the dead and especially ascending into heaven. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Yeah, Nick, uh, it's, we're talking about a very specific sort of event. Right. And on the one hand, right, either it happened or it didn't. And most people would agree that something happened on Easter morning. But whether it happened or didn't happen isn't the same thing as saying that we have knocked down evidence that it happened and that what happened was a resurrection. What -hmm. you can say at the end of the day, and you can say this, this is what you can take to the bank. I'm going to restate what you said. You can take to the bank that the people who were bearing witness to the resurrection in the first century and later absolutely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. That, that is the strongest historical claim. But once you try to get behind those documents to like what actually happened, well, then you're, you're opening yourself up to a, a much more 
difficult historical task and what's going to be plausible to your audience is going to vary from setting to setting, from culture to culture, from historical time period to historical time period. It's going to vary based on the experiences of your audience, the worldview of your audience. I mean, it's even going to vary. Let's just say that we, we were at like a, a conference with a bunch of professional historians. Not even every professional historian is going to weigh that evidence in the same way. Mm-hmm. A lot of professional yeah. historians would just say that that's bonkers, not because there isn't evidence for it, but because we know that sort of thing doesn't happen. People don't rise from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. That's what dead means. Right. But on the other hand, you'll find some way more, uh, I don't just want to call them open-minded historians, but there are like some historians now who have been really kind of shaken by the current state of the academy, the rise of what they call post-colonial theory. And what they've noticed is that, hang on a second, the way that historians in Western universities make sense of events isn't the way that the majority of people in the world today, let alone in human history, make sense of events. So that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in Western universities is wrong about the ways they go about making sense Mm -hmm. of events. It just means that we have to be a little more circumspect about the kind of evidence that we're allowed to include or disclude right off the bat. Right. So let's say that you're like studying uh, the, you know, the British Raj in India. There was like one rebellion uh, against a sort of a local British, uh, you know, sort of just installed puppet King there. And the explanation given for this rebellion was that a local deity named Thakur had told these people to rebel against the British. How do you, as a Western historian, make sense of that? Do you say, no, we know there are no such things as these gods in India? Or do you say, my worldview is my worldview, but those people's worldview is their worldview. How how do I account for divine agency even when I don't necessarily believe in the deity? And now what you find is like even a lot of sort of like secular, atheistic, agnostic historians who are like willing to say, even gods that I don't believe in are still historical agents. Right. At least in the belief of people. Yeah. When I was in, when I was in undergrad, um, the idea that John Withrop did anything in Massachusetts Bay colony because of his religious convictions was considered just tomfoolery nonsense because any good historian would realize that only economic and anthropological evidences could be used in understanding human behavior. And I, I just remember being like, dude, I literally spent 20 hours a week doing Christian ministry because I love Jesus like right now and I'm a human. So like I'm not getting anything for it. Nobody's paying me for it. Everybody hates me for it, right? If I could do 20 hours of Christian ministry a week unpaid for like so that people hate me, why couldn't John Winthrop have done anything in his life in Massachusetts Bay Colony based on his religious conviction, especially when over and over again in his own personal journal, he explicitly says so. And the guy and literally the guy was just like, "Yeah, that's nonsense." And I'm like, "Okay, that's that's bonkers." And and and, and frankly, I'm frankly superstitious, right? Like it, like they've, they've used some kind of spiritual heuristic to narrow the world's meaning so that it fits into their little worldview. And I don't know that that's any weirder than believing in strange gods, frankly. So it's just, it just Marx is your strange God. Karl Marx is your strange God instead of one of the deities of the Hindu pantheon. That's probably putting too fine a point on it for you. I understand. But, <laughs> um, but I, I think, I, yeah. So, I, so one of the things I've, I've heard apologists say relative to the resurrection is also that it is true that you can't prove in that evidential 
like archaeological sense that Jesus rose from the dead because that's not po- a possible relative to this kind of event where the events where the evidence literally has to disappear for the event to happen. But they'd say, um, based on what things we can consider pretty much facts, it's a real strain to explain it in another way. To explain why all these people were willing to die, to explain the eruption of this belief, to explain why this became the the number one world changing event of the history of the human race, to explain that it, it was some other explanation than Jesus rose from the dead, man is really hard. Would you yeah. say that's the case? So I want that to be the case as a Christian. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I want that to be the case as a Christian, but I'm wary of my own motivated thinking. Mm-hmm. And I would say that we live in an age of conspiracy theories. I I don't care where you fall on like the political spectrum. You have heard a conspiracy theory about the other side that at least you want to believe is true. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just not that confident about the evidence. Just again, Mm -hmm. speaking from like a strictly historical perspective, because I, I walk down the halls of universities and academic conferences with really smart, really humble people. Some of them are Christians. Some of them aren't. And now I'm just thinking about the Bible scholars here, Mm -hmm. the Bible scholars and the theologians. Some of them absolutely think the resurrection occurred, but some of them don't. Mm -hmm. And I I just think too highly of them because I know the way that they think and I know how carefully they weigh historical evidence. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not, they're, it's not easy to reduce these people to one of those sort of like stand up, knock down positions. Like, hey, if you actually take the evidence on board, then you have to concede. So, so maybe that's not like a satisfying answer to everybody. But this is one of those questions that I approach with like the faces of people that I know and love in mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't like how dismissive those arguments come across to people that I know and love. Because yeah, it feels like a flippant way to think and therefore it, interested. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to summarize it, Nick. Uh yeah. So would you say would you say then that arguments relative to the resurrection have some explanatory power and are useful in a larger cumulative case? So you might are you might so for example, like somebody like Bill Craig would give like, I believe that the cosmological argument for the origin of the universe is good evidence for God's existence, that his that the fine-tuning of the universe that the resurrection of Christ, that the cum- cumulative nature of human experience religiously of experiencing the resurrected life and knowing the risen Lord, that these make a cumulative case that would draw somebody to believe evidentially in Christian faith. So do you believe that the res- evidence for the resurrection is like, you know, like, we, I don't know if this is true when you were a kid, when I was a kid, there would be like cereal commercials for like sugary cereals. And then they, at the end of the commercial, they'd put the sugary cereal, like where there's eggs and toast and bacon and orange juice. And they say, they say a tasty part of a balanced breakfast that like, you know, is the resurrection a useful, helpful part of a balanced approach that is evidential to leading people to Christ? Sure. So the way I want to answer that question is I want to get back to what apologetics is and add one more layer of nuance. Okay. So technically an apology is a defense speech. Mm-hmm. It, it, there are other kinds of rhetoric that are all about convincing your audience of something. There are plenty of other ancient rhetorical terms that you could use. So, I mean, but an apology it, is you shouldn't convict me. An apology I, is this I is I have that's the right, right to believe and behave this way. That's right. This is what yeah. I think, and this is why I think it, and this is why it's coherent. But it's not. 
So I mean, if you if you want another ancient rhetorical term, you could talk about the rhetorical exercise called the swasoria, which is all about persuading your audience that your case is correct. The apology is just about saying I am innocent, or you know, or just explaining yourself. Right. So when we're talking about an apology that's trying to give evidence that's also trying to convince somebody, mm-hmm. I feel like just at the level of the language of the New Testament in First Peter 3, we've kind of stretched the meaning of apology in a way that I don't think is really helpful for the at least the Greek. Um, but I do think that the more you integrate your, your talk about the resurrection into a holistic picture of Christian belief, who God is, what the world is, what human beings are, what sin and virtue are. The more that the more of a complete picture you paint of Christian belief, the more convincing everything becomes. If you want one one phrase that kind of encapsulates my approach to apologetics, it's that the best apologetics is a really well thought out systematic theology. The more clearly you can articulate the grand vision of Christian belief, Mm-hmm. the more your audience is confronted with a distinctively Christian worldview that stands not on the weight of what they already think is true, but that stands on the weight of what Christians confess to be true and have always confessed to be true because they believe this is the way God made the world and this is the way that God has revealed it to them. Mm-hmm. The, the danger, that I, I, this could sound like an overstatement, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. The danger of, a, of too much weight on evidence is that you end up trying to make your Christian worldview stand on the back of the secular worldview that your audience already possesses. And that means that when some element of their secular worldview gives way at some point in the future, whether you've convinced them of Christian's truth or not, it Mm -hmm. it means that then what they think about Christian truth is in jeopardy too. Right. So, Convince Man, your I, audience. I feel like that's a really important point that I don't know if people get from just those few sentences that you said about it. What, I, let's unpack I, it, Nick. That way, like, so what you're saying is this, is that there's um, what the Bible might call the world or worldliness, that there's like a worldview you're going to interact with in the majority culture around Christian faith. And what apologetics will often do is that it'll, it'll take a single vectored approach. It'll say, this one thing is true as opposed to that one thing. And you should basically just add this into the worldview that already exists so that Christ can be part of your worldview and you can believe. Rather than giving an entirely different coherent coherent approach to understanding human existence in relationship with God through his Christ. And so that changes your view of sexuality and your view of humanity and what it means to be a man or a woman or to be a thinker or a worker or somebody who has takes enjoyment in creation or like everything about human life. And so what you're saying is, is like, so then when, you know, like 30 years passes and a bunch of stuff we thought in our worldliness just kind of falls apart and just changes the veneer of Christian faith over that thing crumbles when that thing crumbles. And so if, if you're, and you're also not going to have Christians that really pursue godliness because their Christian faith is just keeps getting tacked onto secular views that they already have. And so they're, they're the, it's, it's really hard for people who believe in that way to engage with God in the kind of depth that is fully deeply transformational, which is literally the resurrection life you were talking about at the very beginning. And so if our goal is to get people connected to the resurrection life of Jesus, in the present, it has to go beyond a simple explanation for the validity of the historical action of the resurrection so that people will believe in that provisional way. It has to be utterly transformative. 
That's to, right. Yeah, I mean, my yeah. favorite biblical passage on this point is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, where Paul is talking about what his gospel is and what it takes to receive it. And he says that as far as his audience is concerned, the Jews he talks to, they want signs that prove that what he's talking about is true. And the Greeks that he's talking to, they want wisdom that will convince them that it's true. And he says, but what I preach is Christ crucified, and that's a stumbling block and foolishness. So just to unpack that one a little bit, it's a stumbling block because Deuteronomy says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. So it's foolishness to a Jew to say that Jesus, who was crucified, hangs on a tree, cursed by God, is the Messiah. The blessed one. The blessed one. Yeah. And and it's absolutely equally foolish to a to Greeks, who, you know, who have known the Romans for a lot longer than than Jews in Palestine have, and they know what crucifixion yeah. is. They know what crucifixion looks like. Mm-hmm. You don't actually need to convince someone that crucifixion is not wisdom. Right. Paul, so this is why Paul says, "What I preach is foolish, but the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength." So mm-hmm. Paul's gospel only makes sense. If you've already, or if you're willing to at least hold in suspension everything you already think to be true about the world, because it will flip it on its head. And a gospel that doesn't flip the world on its head isn't a gospel. Isn't the gospel. Yeah. I think that's really critical for people to understand. Yeah. That the implications of the gospel are so broad and wide and complete that, and I think it's also important to recognize that as we do apologetics, you're never going to be so good at apologetics that you're going to be respected by people. Like, the, the even if you are explaining the gospel in as faithful a way as possible, if you are faithfully explaining the gospel as it exists in Christ, it's not gonna you're it's not gonna cause you to win friends and influence people. Um, the Holy Spirit will convict people according to the foolishness of what it, what is preached or what you say, and some will believe. And that's, but for the most part, it's going to be either, um, not what is being demanded or it will not be considered wisdom by the people you speak to. Or even worse, they will consider it wisdom and they'll just integrate it with their own worldview and they'll think that they're Christians. Right. When what they've settled for or accepted is actually just a slightly rearranged version of what they already think. Right. right. And I mean, honestly, on judgment day, I don't want to be the person who convinced people that they were Christians when what I was actually giving them was a repackaged vision of their own worldview. This is why right. teachers will receive a harsher judgment than than the rest of us. Yeah, and and if you follow the argument in First Corinthians, for those listening to this part, this this part is after you, when you get to chapter three in First Corinthians, after like Paul talks about preaching the gospel and things like that, he talks about teachers who will um, what they've built will kind of like all burn up, and they may survive if they believe the gospel, but what what they've taught, what they've preached, and how they've worked, it it can all go away. There's no presumption that just because you've gotten people to quote accept Jesus that what you've made is a believer in the risen Christ who belongs to him. Right. Yeah. That's sobering, but it's true. Right. So, okay. So, um, so of what use then is understanding what evidence there is for the resurrection to a believer in their life in the secular city. So I, I, I think what you've already tried to articulate is this. 
you have to take it farther to a complete coherent Christian theology, and that coherent Christian theology should be rooted in the spirituality of the resurrection, not just the historical evidence of the resurrection. The historical evidence for the resurrection should point you to the spirituality of the resurrection, which is a full, life-changing, human-changing understanding of the life of God, right? And that that in its coherence in the life of you as a person and in how you share that broadly is the real force of the spiritual weight of the resurrection. And the evidence of the resurrection as a historical event can lead you and others into that discussion. But that evidence itself is of limited use, um, not united with those other things. Yeah. So that seems to be like the theme of what you're saying to me. I think that's a fair theme. Uh, So what I'll say here is the way you phrase the question, it kind of pulls us away, pulls us back from apologetics, or at least it appears Mm -hmm. to. And what I think it does is it, it puts us in a position to lay the foundation for what I think of as a more responsible Christian apologetics. And it is rooted, as you say, in the nature of everyday Christian life. Um, so when the New Testament talks about the resurrection, it doesn't just give a bare description of what happened. It also says that we should set our hope completely on the resurrection. Like the mm-hmm. resurrection, our future resurrection that's begun in Christ Jesus, but that will be completed one day in the ultimate final resurrection. That should be where Christian hope is grounded. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I just I can't I can't envision living a successful, healthy, holy Christian life apart from rightly ordered hope. Mm-hmm. Um I know that, so for me, one of the great temptations of my life that I have to wrestle with regularly is what the spiritual tradition would call despondency. Mm-hmm. Gloom. So, gloom. Yeah. It's not the same thing as like medical depression. I'm not, I'm not, cause I mean, that's like a biochemical physical thing. Um, th- that's just part of having weak, corrupt flesh, this side of the resurrection. But like the actual temptation to despondency is mm-hmm. when you look at the world and you don't pass it through the filter of Christian hope. When you look at the world and you look at like tribal politics in the U.S., when you look at climate change, when you look at the plight of the unborn, uh, I mean, you know, pick the issue that tends to like throw you for a loop where you find yourself just staring at your shoes for a day. Mm-hmm. The resurrection of the dead says literally all <laughs> will be well. Like there is nothing, there is no circumstance right now that is so corrupt, so beyond redemption that it cannot be made right and made so good in the resurrection of the dead that you won't just totally glorify God for. The necessity of living a life of hope that's grounded in my absolute conviction of the, the, the absolute certain and sure hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's the only way that I can look at the world around me today with like pandemics or like right now. So I live in Australia. And Australia did a really good job controlling the coronavirus and keeping infection numbers low. But right now, they are doing everything in their power to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory when it comes to their vaccination campaign. So you get to, you get to this point of just fatigue and despair, like, this is never going to change. I'm just going to be stuck on this island forever with no, with no shot. I'm never going to be able to fly back to the United States to see my family. You, you could despair. Mm-hmm. But then that, yeah. you, you have to ask, okay, where is my hope? Is my hope in flying? Is my hope in like 
going to professional meetings around the globe? Is my hope even in a good thing like seeing my family in the United States? Or is my hope in the resurrection from the dead? And is God at work even right now in these difficult circumstances, bringing good from evil? Well, of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. And it's, it's because, it's because that, uh, the resurrection frees me from despondency. That, that for me is like the truest evidence of the resurrection in my own life. Yeah. And yeah, other and I think, people have I different think, temptations, but you know. Right. And I think it's important to recognize for people that, you know, some people who are familiar with the Marxist tradition would say, you know, there's this, there's a strain of people who would say that the, I, the hope of resurrection from the dead actually isn't anesthetic to human problems and causes people to be less engaged in solving and helping with them. And I think it's important to recognize that the effect of the original experience of the resurrection among the early Christians was incredible self-sacrifice in solving the problems around them um, in, in all kinds of different ways and on all kinds of different levels. And that there is a way in which a religiousness can be dismissive of real world problems and, and anesthetize people against actually living for the good, but not New Testament Christianity. The effect on people was that they profoundly engaged even to the risk of their own lives because they knew they were part of the resurrection of the dead. I mean, so I would I would add to that that one of uh, the passages that we could all preach on a bit more is Jeremiah twenty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so this is the passage that has that very famous refrigerator verse: "For I know the plans I have for you," says the Lord. But what we don't mm-hmm. often talk about is that the context of that verse that's Jeremiah writing to the exiles in Babylon. They, they've just seen the city destroyed. They've seen tens of thousands of people slaughtered. They've been dragged thousands of miles from home. And now here they are, nowhere. The people that they love are nowhere around them. Their familiar circumstances are completely obliterated. And Jeremiah says two things. So you know, Jeremiah does give them hope of return to the promised land. Gives them, mm-hmm. gives them hope of return. But he also says in that passage, seek the welfare of the city where I've placed you. Right. Don't get so caught up in the hope of return that you're not seeking the welfare of the city where I've placed you. Right. So yeah, this we're not talking about just an opiate for the masses that lets you endure until the sweet by and by. We're also we we're talking about the the energy for living. The resurrection right. is to the, to the Christian uh, the Christian life and Christian soul what Jeremiah's prophecy was, uh, the, and the promise of return to the promised land was mm-hmm. to Israel and Judah in exile. Yeah. Yeah. Devin, I think this has been really fun. Um, you have any final thoughts you want to share my with people about thoughts, the Easter yeah. season and the resurrection? Yeah. I would say my final thoughts are that if you find yourself really concerned about how to like bear faithful apologetic witness to the resurrection, go and read Acts 26 on repeat for a while. Because there you actually have a biblical model for how to do it. Paul is dragged before Festus and Agrippa. Festus is a Roman. Agrippa is the great grandson of Herod, so you know he's like he's a monarch ruling over Jews. Biologically, he's not a Jew, but that's something else. Um, and Paul is asked to give an apology, Acts twenty six two. He's giving a defense speech, and his defense speech centers on the resurrection and the premise of the resurrection and its truth. And he doesn't appeal to like standards that he thinks his whole audience should hold in common with him. He says, this is what the prophets say. (laughs) 
he, he says, this is what scripture says. And why should any of you consider it remarkable that God raises the dead? If you believe that God is who I say he is, or if you at least accept that who I say God is, is the sort of being who would have the power to raise the dead, then why is that such a remarkable thing for me to say? And there are two responses to it. One, Festus thinks that Paul is really smart and also out of his mind. Agrippa, who knows the law and the prophets, but doesn't necessarily believe them or practice them, he gets it. He doesn't convert, but he gets it. So there are, there's a biblical model for this sort of prophecy. I'm sorry, this sort, this sort of apologetic witness. And uh, I think it just makes more sense than trying to convince someone that based on what they already believe, therefore they should believe the resurrection. You have to, you have to present the gospel in its fully alienating, fully confronting glory. Because it's only then that the Holy Spirit goes to work in actually convicting and converting. That's what I'd yeah. conclude with, Nick. Yeah. My um, my guest today has been Dr. Devin White from Melbourne, Australia, but uh, original growing up native of the Midwest. Um, so uh, thanks for being with us, Devin. We really appreciate you being on today. And um, hopefully this is really helpful for people. I think it will be. So um, bless you guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.